our scientists are fantastic, but our system has generally been set up for us to each work in our little silo and do our little individual studies and publish them. And not a lot of recognition and reward for the hard work that goes into interdisciplinary science and getting, first of all, the science going and the publishing going. So for me, an interdisciplinary science spans the natural or technical sciences of engineering and biology or climate modeling together with the social sciences and humanities. And it's just so important that they truly be integrated. Hello, I'm Denise Withers, and you've just joined the Quest for Good Climate Edition an interview series where global leaders share stories and strategies to drive climate action. If you're ready to take your climate leadership to the next level, then stay tuned because I have just the story for you. Most leaders know by now that a business-as-usual approach won't work if we want to avoid the worst effects of climate change. We need expertise from across sectors, cultures, continents, and disciplines to be able to resolve the kinds of wicked problems we now face. But figuring out how to do that kind of interdisciplinary, intersectional work, particularly in a Western, largely patriarchal society, grounded in somewhat risk-averse institutions, requires a major shift in our processes, systems, and beliefs. And we don't have the luxury of waiting a few decades while we figure it out. That's where Dr. Margot Hurlburt comes in. As the Canada Research Chair in Climate Change, Energy and Sustainability Policy and a professor of the Johnson Schoima Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Regina, she's studying interdisciplinary approaches to these kinds of wicked problems through research on real-world projects about issues like water and clean energy. She's also been a coordinating lead author, contributing author, and review editor for the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, or IPCC. Through that work and her decades of research, Margot has developed deep expertise that allows her to bring a unique perspective to this challenge and shine a light on promising approaches for current and future climate leaders. I know she has some fabulous insights to share, so let's dive into this conversation. Hi, Margot, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, you know, you've been leading research in this space for quite a while, and so it would be great if you could start us out by telling us what you do as the Canada Research Chair in Climate Change, Energy, and Sustainability Policy. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I wonder, because I... feel that I'm in two very connected in my mind areas, but in other people's, they're somewhat disconnected. Mm. So I am all about climate change and how do we solve climate change? And we need to be cognizant of future climate change. And there's two different but very interconnected areas that the international community and most scientists work in. And these are the areas of mitigating or reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then the second area of adapting to climate change that is happening now and is happening in the future. So they come under working group one, the former of the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, and then working group 
to the adaptation part of climate change working group two. So the solution space that's in working group one and somewhat in working group three, and then the adaptation in working group two often are very disconnected, like many of the complex issues, but also solutions in the climate change space. It's so interesting you say that, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, but you know, I just had a great conversation with somebody who works at the municipal level, and their adaptation work is very much embedded into another area that they don't really think about as a climate change area at all. It's just part of the work that their engineering group does. Interesting, and and that's just around built infrastructure, facilities, yes. Very much a climate change topic because we're having more severe, intense precipitation events and our infrastructure isn't built to that changing reality. The standards haven't kept up to our changes, but then the way we make standards, they don't actually consider future changes with climate change. They don't, exactly. So do you have a a research project or a favorite project that you've worked on that can bring your work to life a little bit more for us? Either something you're working on now or something you've done in the past? Yeah, I have two, again, which reflects this this nature I have of being what appears to be two very different projects, but really for me are quite interconnected. Mm. The first project is around water security, and it's a project I lead that's a Social Science Humanity Research Council project, partnership project with countries in South America, Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay. And the first two countries are so interesting to work with because they are experiencing a mega drought, a drought that's gone on in excess of 10 years where they really have very, very little water. And we have that reality in Saskatchewan. We're coming out of a severe couple year drought here. And in Saskatchewan, we're experiencing what many areas are also experiencing, which is a whiplash effect between drought and then the next year flood and then switching back to drought. And we haven't seen those changes back and forth so quickly as we are seeing them now. So when you look at an example like that, given the role that you have at the university and in so many other organizations, what are a couple of the biggest leadership challenges that you face in doing that work? Hmm. Yes, it's a lot of moving parts. It really is. And I have a great team and I'm really impressed with how my team has with this project because of our experience brought together our researchers in the country to be working with the same interview guide, very, very close to the same interview guide in both Spanish and English so that we can do comparability across case studies. So just being surrounded by leaders like that, that are taking up individual pieces that are so important in the project in order to do that type of work. I'm just so thankful for the volunteerism of co-principal investigators, but also collaborators and contributors, and then our partners in the community. There's just so much leadership around water security in the Canadian Plains and Saskatchewan particularly. And working internationally, what kinds of challenges does that raise or opportunities does that raise for you? 
Yeah, the challenge is the time, the time it takes to sit on the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change and work for them and juggle all of the things we do as academics in our teaching and our research and mentoring our students to do something like that. But the reward is just so, so monumental because we really get to contribute and see how our science is informing global policies, such as the over 120 countries that have signed up to be net zero by 2050. So that momentum is having impact in Canada, where in order to achieve that, we have the federal government in our provinces setting goals to either 2050 or at the very least 2030. So a lot of these things take time, but the reward is just so great. And they, they take time and they, they take a lot of support and they take a lot, of, a lot of energy. And, you know, you make me think of a couple of things. One is when you look at that long journey between when your research is done and when policy is enacted and then, you know, beyond policy, when change actually starts to happen, how do you stay motivated during that long period, that long journey? I think because when we do interdisciplinary climate change work with communities and people, every day we're learning new things from our, whether it's our Indigenous or our local people, about challenges and how they're solving them. And we're helping the conversation to to help people adapt and think about that future climate in different ways into the future. So the hard work of interdisciplinary science is just so interesting and rewarding that it makes us just want to roll up our sleeves and do a better job and write our results faster so that that we can get them published in our peer-reviewed journals and do the meta-analysis of other studies that can inform this science going forward. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of terms that I've noticed in, in reading a bit about your work that I think a lot of people are not going to be familiar with, and it's the concepts of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work. Can you tell us a bit about those and what they are? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. This is one of my, my key bugaboos that our science and our scientists are fantastic, but our system has generally been set up for us to each work in our little silo and do our little individual studies and publish them. And not a lot of recognition and reward for both interdisciplinary scientists that might have an interdisciplinary PhD, but also the hard work that goes into interdisciplinary science and getting, first of all, the science going and the publishing going. So for some people, interdisciplinary means having different types of engineers work on a project. <laughs> and that could be it. But for me, an interdisciplinary science includes multiple, but especially spans the natural or technical sciences of engineering and biology or climate modeling together with the social sciences and humanities. And it's just so important that they truly be integrated. Uh, I was just working on a recent call, and I don't want to point fingers, but it was the typical climate adaptation call, and it said, well, you have to have at least one social scientist. And as soon as I read that term to me, I just 
closed down my browser and stopped participating <laughs> because if, if that's the language that's being used, then it's very clear that the social science is just an add-on. So interdisciplinary science really means engaging with people and with social decision-making that happens both by individuals in a behavioral economic sense, but also in communities and groups. And with interdisciplinary science, we can bring not only the changes that are happening in water quality through biology and quantity through our hydrology, but also with socioeconomic pathways that really are a social science idea of the narrative of where we're going and how we're going to get there into the future. So interdisciplinary, from my perspective, is a rich, rich team of multiple disciplines that actually work together in solving any climate problem like drought is really ultimately a social problem. That's great. Thank you. And then how is that different from transdisciplinary? Yeah, so transdisciplinary, there have been many, many, mostly social science and humanities, but I know there's other scientists that are really interested in publishing in this regard, and really a wealth of definitional and theorizing about transdisciplinary that's happened in journal articles. And there is very much less a science of documented transformational change. So people have documented that transformational change is change that involves people and change that involves substantial changes to our social structures and our ideologies, right? So there's been some great theorizing on what that means and that in order to achieve that, we have to include people in our interdisciplinary science to actually be able to achieve the transdisciplinary objectives and definition. But less actual documented research that's achieved that. Very difficult to do. So I I really do endorse the transdisciplinary method and my water security adaptation project is really about that with partners and working with communities. But boy, you know, fingers crossed, we're going to be documenting whether we really do achieve that substantive change in adaptation. So with five years or even less with most research programs, it's really hard to make that substantive change and document it, but fingers crossed that we'll be able to. That's very interesting because you alluded to that earlier, this idea of recognition and rewards and basically creating the conditions to allow practices like interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research to flourish. The system really isn't set up for that. So are there things that you can think of that would enable more of that kind of work when we're looking at either the funding environment or the evaluation environment or things like that? I, th- I think there's some really good talk that's going on with some of the research calls that are coming out from the federal government, from European funding agencies as well, around uh, interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary. And I do know of some projects that are being funded that do 
tick all the boxes on what I've described and they are going to do this. So it's starting to happen. We just have to keep the momentum going and really keep our eye on, you know, two things, which is ensuring that social science humanities isn't just an add-on, like you have one person in a team <laughs> who gets to do that part, plus all the equity, diversity, inclusion part too, because it's, it's really hard. I've participated in these projects as the only social scientists with, you know, a dozen engineer non-social scientists and to tow all of that workload it's really really hard so I think we have to be cognizant that it's never just an add-on and that it really means allowing often social science and humanities to lead so if you look at who's being funded and what the projects are between NSERC and SHRC, right? Like it's already evident where the science dollars go. So if we really want to achieve this transformational change, it's putting our money where our mouth is. So when you sit down with some collaborators to explore the potential for a project, how do you figure out what disciplines need to be part of that project and who leads that conversation? It differs by university. Generally, most universities are such that the faculty come up with an idea and get together their group and pitch to their university. And then the university helps the group form and write and get their grant application in. So that's a a great model. Most universities do it well. So making sure that all those cogs are moving, that the researchers have the ideas and maybe even sometimes the research office vice president starts it rolling and there's the support from the institutions for all of that activity of writing and making the pitch. And when we look at something that's also going to include community, might include First Nations, might include industry, is there a similar process or how would that work? Yes and no. So when a partnership grant happens or a MITEX where we have to have industry uh, involved, it's really an interesting dance to find something that's of interest to a researcher, but also to the industry as well. And oftentimes in the social science area, we have a hard time pitching social science to an industry is my perception but it's not impossible it just takes a lot of time and conversation to come to that identification of exactly what research question and exactly what type of work in the mytex or in the industry funded social science humanity research area that working with social science humanity research council recognizes the innovative nature of social science and humanities, right? We don't have that same uphill battle of working with one industry um, to ask these big societal changes. Right. Yeah. And with Indigenous people, it's in a way very different, but there's the same principle that the Indigenous people, and increasingly, I'm really glad to see we have increasing numbers of Indigenous scientists and researchers, that they are the ones that are determining their questions and what their communities want to know and participate. And that's really, really important that it be Indigenous created Indigenous-led research that's happening on the ground. Yeah, I love seeing that happen. 
Um, so I'm just curious because your work touches many organizations. And so when we look at organizations like universities and the IPCC, what's their role in addressing climate change in, from a leadership perspective? The universities in particular? Sure. Well, let's start, let's start with the universities. Right. So universities, I have experienced where I am, which is a small, small university of Regina, really with their research strategy, wanted to address climate change and brought together scientists to handle that or think about addressing that challenge that I became part of and we've continued to nurture here. And my experience at other universities is often if they don't have that push to address a big topic like climate change, they end up with different orientations, perhaps to agro-food security and the next generation of foods, right? And there's an inherent underlying theme of adapting to drying conditions in a lot of work that happens at these institutions, but they're really not addressing the societal problem of climate change um, in a holistic manner. So they've got little pieces of the puzzle that are spanning the problem not only of increasing drying conditions and doing better with agribusiness, but they're not steeped in interconnected climate change problems. Mm, That's a really nice differentiation. Thank you. And when we look at the IPCC, the work that you've done with them, what's the opportunity for them to continue to lead and even step up their role as leaders in addressing climate change? Yeah, so the IPCC, their synthesis just came out today. So I've been mm-hmm. following that as one of, I'm not an author on the actual synthesis, but some of the documents, the AR6 and the special land and climate report that contributed to that. So they're going to start a new cycle coming this July. And it'll be really interesting both to see the topics that are selected as the key issues. And those, of course, will probably fall out of this sixth assessment cycle. But the other thing that the IPCC has the ability to, to do more of is synthesis reports. And those, they did three of them, you'll remember. They did the 1.5, the land and climate, and the cryosphere. But it really allows them to bring the adaptation, the mitigation, and the working group three work together in order to come up with solutions. So having that climate science, mitigation, adaptation all together with the three working groups, for me, that's really exciting and really substantively, like the synthesis report, important in knowing where we're at and where we need to go. And do you find that people need that kind of clarity and that kind of synthesis? Yes, I do. So having watched Working Group 1, 2, and 3 come out over the years, the past few years as they have, the climate science of Working Group 1, the red flag report, was really great. And then the adaptation, and it's all about vulnerability and comparative advantage and disadvantage that's going on in the world around these climate impacts And then to see working group three around mitigation and the different sectors and what's going to happen in each sector was really great. But I even found myself talking in the media for me in relation to adaptation. When I look at the socioeconomic pathways and trying to keep global warming well below two, mitigation is such an important part of that, that 
I don't think we should ever lose sight that our our adaptations, which, for instance, if I'm going to pump groundwater for irrigation, but it's going to use a whole bunch of electricity that's produced from coal, that's not a really good adaptation. Like, it's really a maladaptation. And I think when we don't consider interconnecting relationships, we risk maybe having more maladaptations and less than holistic thinking. So it's really important from my perspective to not only be interdisciplinary, but also be thinking about all three things, the climate science, the mitigation and the adaptation, because they really do inform one another. Yeah, that's super helpful. And then just looking ahead, you know, given your experience, the research that you've done, you've worked with so many different groups on so many different issues. For emerging climate leaders who are just getting going, what advice would you have for them, especially when it comes to, as you just said, dealing with that kind of complexity and the uncertainty of the future? What are some either skills or methods or models or tools that you would recommend for them? Yeah. So from my perspective, really, the most important thing is to always be curious and questioning and wanting to learn and know more. And it will take an incredible amount of time. So it's almost an inherent characteristic of someone, (laughs) right, that's going to be taking on a big, big challenge like climate change. But also it's I think part of the solution is always having that curiosity. And with that, in order to have a curiosity, I find you also have to have a certain recognition that you're not the expert. I really don't think, I think I'm, I kind of understand a lot of different things, but I'm really not the expert on one single thing, but that leaves me open to hear from other scientists and to ask questions and try to learn more about what other people have published and are doing. And it's that acknowledgement that I know what I know today based on my work up to today, but into the future with this changing climate and our changing societies, we have to keep learning all of the time. So I really don't ever say that I'm an expert on one thing because I'm uh, continuously seeking out the people that know more about different topics that relate to climate change than I do and learning from them. So the mindset is one of the most important things. Yes, humility, but also (laughs) curiosity. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Last question, just given what we heard today from the IPCC, any last thoughts or anything that you would like to share with the audience in terms of where we need to go? Yeah, thanks for this question. I think it's wonderful. I've been reading the synthesis report since it came out, and it's very subtle because people have to remember the summary for policymakers is negotiated with governments and the scientists in, in a room over a few days. And some people think about it as a the IPCC as a lobby group or, I don't know, a group of scientists are out to um, or sell their, their research. But it's really conservative in that the messages have been negotiated by the scientists, first of all, to make sure they 100% reflect the science, but then also by the governments to ensure that they reflect the science but also reflect what government priorities and interests are. So 
if I were writing some of the main messages of what the sciences we're looking at today, it's that the window of opportunity is almost closed. Mm. And the IPCC didn't use that language. That's my language. But it's really looking at socioeconomic pathway one. And in relation to population and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, I think the chances of achieving that are dismal. So that means our window of opportunity is almost closed. So my language is much stronger. I think we need a direction change. So they do point out in this synthesis, we need to reduce emissions right now, start right now. This isn't something that we can kick down the road, the can that we can kick down the road any longer. So that really does mean big changes. And we didn't even achieve these in COVID with nobody or a lot less people driving cars and flying. So we really need to think about how we're going to do this and imagine that future. And that's part of my other research that I do is imagining how we're going to get to that future of net zero. Now I have one more question. Is that all right? (laughs) So how do you do that imagination work? Because imagination is not a place that a lot of leaders are comfortable working in. Yeah, I don't work with those guys. Uh, What I do (laughs) do is I, I work with communities and communities and businesses about what it looks like to achieve net zero and what it might mean that has to change in order to achieve that. And I have a background in power production because I worked at the electric utility for a number of years. So we have to, even though things are so interconnected in sectors, focus somewhere. And actually, energy and power production is the place most have focused, in my opinion, for the last few decades, because it's always been the low hanging fruit. And we really haven't achieved what we could or should. In that relation, wind and solar are so cheap, but they're really not deployed to the extent that we can. So if we have people start imagining what it is to have no emissions by 2050, and then backcasting what that would look like and how they would plan for it, then they can start considering that from both the technological decision-making, but also behavioral change with people having more solar on their houses and communities having more wind turbine, wind power production uh, in their communities. So for me, that's also a really important part of the transformational change. It is. Margot, thank you so much for this conversation. I could talk for hours and hours. I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing and your leadership and your insights. And I wish you the best of luck with your research going forward. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a special climate edition of The Quest for Good, an interview series about how leaders break down barriers to create a better future. If you like the show, please subscribe, leave a review, or better yet, share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about how to take your climate leadership to the next level, check out the Master of Arts in Climate Action Leadership at Royal Roads University, or get in touch at denisewithers.com. <laughs>